Welcome, and thanks for joining us in this episode of CAFE, the Stanford Center for the Study of the Novel podcast. In this installment, our host Margaret Cohen is joined by Nicholas Page, Chloe Edmondson, and John Bender, following a discussion of Nicholas's new book, Technologies of the Novel. Nicholas is a professor in the Department of French at the University of California, Berkeley. His previous book, Before Fiction, offers a history of the novel from the point of view of fictionality, and Technologies of the Novel aims to be the first quantitative history of the novel, using a systematic sampling of formal devices from French and English novels to trace their development from 1600 to 1830. John Bender is an emeritus professor of both English and comparative literature at Stanford University, and is the Jean G. and Morris M. Doyle Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies. And Chloe Summers Edmondson is a lecturer in the Thinking Matters program at Stanford University. Her research is situated at the crossroads of literary criticism, cultural history, and media studies, with a focus on letter writing practices in 17th and 18th century France. She has also worked on numerous digital humanities projects in affiliation with the Center for Spatial and Textual Analysis. Her work has appeared in the Journal of Modern History and in Digital Humanities Quarterly, and she recently co-edited the volume Networks of Enlightenment, Digital Approaches to the Republic of Letters. This conversation was recorded on February 8th, 2021. We are thrilled to be sharing this conversation with you. So thank you again for listening in, as we scholars have a friendly chat among ourselves. Nick Page, it's really, um, it's really exciting to have you here to discuss um, your book, which I understand is really, as we used to say, hot off the presses. Um, is that true? Well, it, it, it's print on demand, actually, so it's always hot off the presses. Oh. <laughs> So the title of the book, uh, Technologies of the Novel, um, it's a little bit shocking to anyone who grew up with um, an Enlightenment understanding of literature as non-instrumental. Uh, what, what, what do you mean by technology, the novel as a technology? Um, it's not the first time that a book has been published called Technology, there's one called Technology of the Novel. Um, which is trying to use the distinction between uh, Walter Ong's distinction between orality and, and writing. Um, so this is different. It's a notion I developed. I think it's better to start rather with technology than the idea of the artifact. Um, so as I was kind of trying to parse the, say, I don't know, 200 plus early history of the novel in France, so running from about 1600 to past 1800, about 1830 is where I go uh, in France. It seemed to me that the best way of getting at this was to kind of look at kind of fairly discrete, formal iterations of novels that kind of would came and went. And so I started to call these things artifacts. And um, in order to kind of understand the coming and going of those artifacts and, and the way they, the way they changed in time, both as percentage of the market and changed in time also, you know, in themselves. So the very early epistolary novels didn't really look anything like what we kind of think of as epistolary novels by the time we get to the heart of the, the heart of the 18th century. 
that's just one example. Um, in order to kind of think these changes, um, I, I, I went I went for this idea of artifacts and the way artifacts evolve and do artifacts that might artif might these literary artifacts evolve like technologies evolve. So just think, you know, smartphones and toilets and all the rest, right? Um, so I did finally find, so I, I did a, a not insignificant amount of you know, work reading around science and technology studies um, to see, you know, how they would, how they talk about technological evolution. It's uh, this idea of evolution um, is, has been kind of controversial in literary um, circles. Obviously there was Franco Moretti's attempt to kind of use a, try to postulate a kind of idea of natural selection for, uh, for cultural products. And I would say that that did not take off uh, as an idea, but historians of technology use it a lot um, to explain how various technological artifacts arose and then were kind of worked on over time, um, changed their shapes, became good at doing things that they didn't really do well at the, you know, at, at the outset. Technologies then kind of maps onto this concern with thinking of literary um, forms as artifacts um, and artifacts that are in some sort of evolution, evolution meaning then a constrained change, a process of change that is constrained. The idea that whatever we do tomorrow is, it, it may be new, but its newness is always kind of confined or constrained by a, a kind of an, a manifold of possibilities that is given to us by by what people have done um, yesterday and what they are doing today, right? Um, so that's basically it. I mean, I, I you know I could also I, I've used a, uh, made a lot of use of um, Brian Arthur's um, uh, book on um, what is technology and how it is how it evolves, um, and you know he offers a definition of technology that I like is basically that it's a it's an organized purpose system for doing things, for doing things that people want to do. Um, and it can be material and it can be more immaterial, um, but that's basically a, a definition of what a technology is. So how do you see the join between this broad notion of technology, which may overlap to some degree with the notion of system that you also use, how do you see the fit between these highly specific studies and analyses and that big idea of technology? There seems to be a kind of almost fracture in the book. Yes, there is a there is a split between you know what happens at the level of the system and the various artifacts that are that, that make it up. So, I mean, one issue, one, one question that, that, that arises, you know, sometimes is so, well, given this system, given this, this understanding of literary technologies and, and artifacts, um, how would you, how do you, how does this change the way you read um, Tom Jones, right? And um, my, my first answer is that th it doesn't have to change the way we read Tom Jones. Um, it kind of depends on which questions you're answering of Tom Jones. Um, if you're answering questions about, you know, well, why is it split into chapters and why we have this, why we have this voluble um, narrator, um, it may be useful to um, kind of consider that as um, 
uh, as an effect of, of, of practices um, that are that are inherited. So you might want to you might want to understand it that way. So it could, but it doesn't have to. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which um, individual works are fascinating and meaning and productive of meaning um, that really don't enter into these kind of questions of the macro behavior. So there's, I mean, it's it's very abstract in a way. What I'm doing is super abstract. I'm abstracting from content. I'm abstracting from who who are the producers. One, so one question I never ask in this in this in this project is um, is who is writing these novels? Are where are they being are they being published in in, in a capital? Are they being published in the provinces? These are these are questions I don't are they male writers, female writers. Don't ask these questions. Um, aristocratic bourgeois. I don't know. Um, so there's a lot of abstraction um, now. But one of the reasons why I think that nonetheless, what I'm doing is, does have kind of a, a coherence to it is because even when you, do all, when you do all that abstraction, you still get very interesting patterns um, and recurring patterns. Um, and for me, that, that is a confirmation that I am asking a question that actually has historical meaning. Um, if, if I just got back noise when I graphed out what I was looking at, then I, I think I would kind of ask me, asking the wrong question. And, and I mean, to a certain extent, there's selection bias in the book itself because only the graphs that actually revealed something which made it into the book, right? And there are other graphs that like didn't do anything. Um, that, but actually most of, the, most of the hunches I was pursuing led to, to information um, patterns. Um, and I think that this might be the fact that I kind of been working on the novel in a while and kind of had intuitions because of my fairly long-term interaction with the, with the archive. Um, but other things didn't, didn't play out. For example, I was, I was convinced that um, if you measured um, the amount of time that was given over to introductory character, character portraits, in novels, that as you went on, that would decrease, and it totally doesn't decrease. <laughs> um, what happens? It turns out, and this is part of uh, um, part of the chapter I have on this uh, on a third-person novel that seems to me to kind of to be formally um, coherent and new, and so I call it the new third-person novel. But new does not mean modern. It doesn't mean our novel. It doesn't mean the novel of the 19th century. It just means it's it's new at the time. Um, one of the properties of that novel was um, to um, start out with scenes. Um, and so you actually didn't introduce characters. You didn't say, you know, so-and-so um, was the third son of so-and-so and had inherited, you know, anyway, it wasn't a character portrait be that kind of biographical, be it, be it mo a moral character portrait or possibly even a physical one. They would start with they would start with scenes. Um, uh, so physically, they'd kind of set a location, and then they'd have their their human actors start to do things within that physical space. Um, and it's virtually non-existent in the first half of the century, um, with, with with some exceptions. Um, and so that's actually, so I discovered that while I was looking for character portraits that were getting longer, in fact, I ended up finding this other thing. It, it does seem to me that, that, that a lot of the um, tags really do turn around this notion of reference and fictionality. 
and uh, are, are, are almost like a shock, which in that way I, I do see in continuity before fiction to, um, to try to relinquish that sort of Austin universe, you know, and think about all the different ways that readers could imagine the relationship between the world depicted in narrative and the world depicted, or the world in which they were living. It, it seems like there's a, I don't know if those are just the tags that worked out and those are the ones that you include, or um, if if that, that kind of shape is somewhere in, I don't know, shape your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, so, you know, there was this this earlier book before fiction that came about 10 years ago, um, where I, I, I wasn't really tagging things yet. I was, I, I kind of postulated um, these regimes of referential regimes, you might want to call them. And um, so there were three of them. And, and, and one was the, the Aristotelian regime, um, which was, we, you, you, in order to make novels, you, you take, you take important heroes from legend or history that people love and have been talking about for a long time and and you show them doing the things they're known for doing and you know you invent you invent a little love story to you know flesh it out or whatever you do what you you know you do do what you need to do to put your put your mark on that um it's something that tragedians did all the time it's not not that strange um so that was one regime and then the second regime was the pseudo factual regime where um, you don't have these kind of well-known characters, these somebodies. You have you invent your characters. They're these nobodies. No one's ever heard. No one's ever heard of, of Roxana. You know, before they open they open the book, they're not supposed to have. But but you say that Roxana existed. You know, um, or Crusoe, or, you know, whoever. So I call that pseudo factual because there's this this truth pretense in it, right? And that, that's different. It's very different from the Aristotelian method. The Aristotelian, if you're an Aristotelian novelist, you never have to say that that Nero existed because everyone knew that Nero existed. You just, it's just not, you just wouldn't do it. Um, you only have to do that when you start to, you try to push out and invent a literature of, of nobodies, you know, these nobodies, um, which, you know, as you, I think you were hinting, is great for, you know, if you really want to talk about what's going on today, I mean, it has a lot of, there are a lot of advantages to using, to using nobodies who, you know, people, Paris and London and so on and so forth, rather than, rather than talking about the classical past or maybe the Renaissance, you know, obviously that, that has a certain, that has a you know, powerful usefulness. Um, and then the third regime was, was, you know, I call it the fictional regime, um, <laughs> which was still nobody's, but then you just kind of give up this pretense that they're true, right? Um, and so basically I, I never really gave up those three categories. Um, I don't call them, I don't really call them regimes anymore. Um, I, I, I just think it, it's, just, it's, not, it's not too helpful. I mean, we kind of think of segmentation of history in, in a certain way. And, and once I started, you started graphing things, you, you, you realize that there are no, I mean, for me, there are essentially, there are no periods there. So if there are no, if there are no stable periods, then then, then the term regime doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Um, but um, so that's that that's certainly where I came from. I mean, these were these were tags that kind of continued to work. I did have to um, elaborate um, var variations, and and I had to tweak them. Um, 
because these were terms that I essentially, uh, first I first I, I applied them to the, the 18th century where they worked very well, but then when I started moving back to the 17th century in France, there were all these other artifacts that actually couldn't really be classified by these terms. And you start to have a lot of um, uh, essentially what we call Romain Clé, right? So you have these keyed novels, um, and um, even within the category of the Aristotelian novel, um, there was kind of a, a variant in which you, um, in which, in which usually your 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 protagonist was invented, but all the other characters were taken from history, um, and so that's an, that's kind of an interesting variant that that appears and then fades out again in a very in a patterned way. It all it does kind of it, it makes a certain sense. So the, the tags are um, you know. Um, you know, partially they're they're a guess, um, and uh, based on you know one's experience, um, <clears throat> and then you refine them. I mean, but you know that's what you do. You know, if you're a pollster and you wanted to you know, investigate people's sexual preferences, you'd start out with a number of things, and you start to meet people, and they're like, and they're like, I don't identify with any of them. You have to and you have to come up with new check boxes, you know, for people. I mean, but that's that's not that doesn't show the process is broken. That shows the process is working. You know, um, and I think to, to to speak to what you were saying earlier about how abstract your project is and how it doesn't ent entertain this data of who the producers are and you know the gender of authors, etc. I I do wonder if in some ways your project is actually opening an avenue for a scholar to come along and kind of take up the baton and and look at the data that you have generated against some of that other data and see what kinds of crossovers you can find, or if, if somehow qualifying the data that you have with other data might actually answer some of the questions that I think were coming up in the discussion earlier about, you know, some of the questions about why, why innovation at this time versus another time, what is that feedback loop of the consumers and the producers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, ab I mean, absolutely. And of course, you know, a lot of people, they write books, they're like, yes, I think someone else should do that. <laughs> So I'm in a little bit of that position of saying, I think, so, yes, that's a great, great subject for someone else to do. Um, I mean, I think the gender thing could be really interesting. I think the kind of question of, of geographical location um, as well. Um, there's, uh, I mean, th there's a, some, some difficulty with gender because so many 18th century novels were published anonymously. Um, so then you kind of got to figure out what to do with those. Um, but um, but your your basic point is great. I mean, like translations, I think is an awesome one, right? I mean, um, you know, what is the effect of translations? Do are um, are are do somehow like if if some can can we trace some sort of a formal feature actually being imported um, imported from a different country? Um, so in England, in England, that would go that would go through through France. For a certain part of the novel's history, and then in a slightly later part of the history, it would probably go back the other way because England, because France was importing a lot of novels from England, right? Um, so, you know, a great question would be: um, is is there any, you know, any, um, um, you know, evidence that um, that these practices threat spread through, diffuse through translation? Um, so I, I I think that that that's another great question along along these lines. Um, but but so are you know questions like um, you know I mean I'm happy to to entertain um, 
you know, the idea that, um, um, how shall I say, that um, the production figures of novels might be important um, or, you know, libraries. These were some of the, the possible affordances of novels that, that, that John mentioned in our earlier conversation. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously I'm, I'm completely open to more granularity, right? Um, I I think you know I, I I think, but in a way, so in a way, this novel, th this book is it's really low hanging fruit. <laughs> I mean, it's really amazing how little we kind of knew about the way people wrote novels <laughs> before some of these graphs. I mean, I, I, I mean. They they surprised me a lot a lot of the time. I had no I had no idea that there, there were this many kind of so-called French nouvelles, or I, I didn't know the market penetration of the epistolary novel. Um, I assumed it would be way higher. I mean, it's higher in England than it is in France. Um, but even in England, it's kind of a flash in the pan. Doesn't last very long. Um, um, in terms of just sheer production numbers, um, uh, this is the first book that really compares French production figures to English production figures and finds they're uncannily the same for most of the 18th century. Um, uncannily, I would say. Um, I mean, granted, England has a smaller population, so um, that's interesting. Um, then you probably talk about, talk about literacy rates and stuff like that, but um, for brute numbers, they're exactly the same. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of long hanging fruit there. There's stuff we didn't know that's like, oh, and, and once you know it, it does become more difficult to spin certain types of narrative. I think you're wise to leave out translations because they're, they're usually adaptations in the 18th century. And the, I mean, the, the translation of Clarissa bears surprisingly little relationship uh, to, to the novel. Uh, but I can see that there might be finer grained areas that you could go into. For instance, uh, Francis Burney's novel, Evelina, I don't know whether you've read it. Um, its form is epistolary, but as the novel moves along, the letters get longer and longer and longer. And you get to the point where the letters will be like 30 pages long in the printed text. So it's if the novel were wanting to be a third person <laughs> novel, not an epistolary novel, uh, whereas say that isn't true of La Clos, Ladies and Oscars at all, seems to me. Um, so there's, there's things like that that, uh, but what about novel, let's continue with Tom Jones, a novel that specifically asks to be looked at with regard to the epic, a novel that is chaptered, is it's booked and chaptered. It's booked like an epic. Um, and which of your categories does it go into? Because the characters are all invented, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I um, well, I mean, so it would admit. So I have a number of there are a number of different tags, right? And um, uh, and kind of types of novels, and some types of novels share certain certain tags. Um, so it's a, it's a little complicated for people who haven't actually uh, read the book. Um, but um, so, um, so, so it, it depends. I mean, we could talk about the, the, the truth 
posture of the book. Um, we could talk about its its division into into books and chapters. Um, we could talk about it as a third person um, novel. Um, so there are all these kind of different ways that one could try one could the tags that we give it right and to kind of understand its understand its place, understand its relationship to other literature um, of the time. Uh, you know how representative is it of other books that were being written at the time. Um, so that's kind of some of the, the, the things that one would do. Um, but it, it does, I mean, in, in its basic kind of form, it would look much more like a so-called, you know, what we often, the type of novel that we often call romance, that for me is simply, there's no distinction with the novel. Romances are what, they're novels. Uh, they're novels that share a certain family resemblance of, of characteristics and they're they're formal, they're axiological, they're based on the types of characters they have, the number of characters they have, that sort of thing. Uh, they have circular journeys, which Tom Jones has. Um, very often, very often there's a journey, there's a, which can be in the original form, kind of Mediterranean in scope, but um, has all sorts of also kind of um, national scopes as we, um, you know, as, as, as we move into into um, you know later periods, um, so there'd be a lot of different ways of kind of talking about of talk, classifying Tom Jones. Um, I I don't really to tell the truth. I can't recall. I don't think it was in my sample of English novels from uh, from that decade. I don't think it was in the sample, so I'm not, I don't think I I don't think I actually uh, actually did tag it. Um, but um, but then it would just be it would be it would be one point you know it would be one data point and and sometimes the data points are are the data points of important books are are actually very representative of what's going on and sometimes they and sometimes they aren't sometimes they're ahead of the curve sometimes they can be behind the curve um, it it really depends and that, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with success. Um, it would seem to me your system is not well calibrated to deal with the traditional conception of influence. For example, the influence of Richardson's Clarissa on Rousseau's Julie, or say the influence of Tom Jones on Thackeray's Vanity Fair or Dickens's Bleak House. Yeah, no, that is absolutely is absolutely true. And I don't deny those influences. Um, I to come back to something that did come up during during an earlier discussion was that um, you know I, I tend to think of, of of this book as just kind of displacing a bit the focus from more obvious um, more obvious types of influence um, sometimes more obvious types of classifications of novels so genre classifications in which in which things like um, setting and character type and plot arcs are all kind of very familiar um, because they fit in, they can fit in with a genre, right? Um, so instead of kind of qualifying novels that way, or instead of kind of tracing evolutions or you know, uh, through influence, right? Um, I'm kind of looking at a, a, a level that is, um, you know, again, a, a little more abstract and, and potentially could seem completely without interest, right? I mean, so how how interesting is it to follow to follow um, how many first person novels are written, or how many epistolary novels, or 
or how many novels, third-person novels with chapters. How interesting can that be? And I mean, that, the, the, the gambit of the book is that actually that's more interesting than you think. Um, how interesting can it be to, to, know, to know how many novels were written with kind of bona fide historical protagonists? I mean, I, I think it is interesting. It's not, it's not that, type of that type of influence that you're talking about, which I think is, is super interesting and it's undeniable. Um, but for example, I mean, you know, despite the, um, the uptake of, of a novel like Rousseau's Julie, right? Um, I mean, I would argue that the influence of that novel um, is much more visible in, um, in later plots in later characters, in the values that the characters of later novels espouse, than in its specific epistolarity, right? So, um, so Bernardin de Saint-Pierre's Poly Virginie is obviously totally Rousseauistic, um, but formally it looks, com it's completely different. Um, it's a very interesting artifact in itself. It's not particularly, um, I wouldn't say it's a one-off, but it's not particularly um, a, a frequent artifact that one finds. Uh, but but he wasn't following he wasn't following Julie as an epistolary as a polyphonic epistolary novel, right? Um, that's not what he was doing. Uh, Chloe, can I come back and just ask you something? If you had sort of in the back of your mind when. Um, you asked Nick, well, could this lead to, to material or give conclusions that um, scholars could take in other directions, for example, to answer questions about um, gender and authorship? And I mean, I know you've done a lot of letter reading in the 18th century uh, and reading uh, both letters and novels and uh, letters in other genres. And uh, I'm just wondering if, if there were conclusions that were suggested to you or directions for research that, that you thought were interesting? Absolutely. I think what I was really thinking about while I was reading this book was, I think there was definitely, I, I had a yearning for some of those questions of causality and thinking about why are these very interesting patterns happening when they are. And, and it seemed to me, and I was, I was actually drawing on this less from my work reading correspondence, but more actually from my experience working on other digital humanities projects and thinking about how we could map different cultural or value changes or societal changes with thinking about gender, thinking about um, social class, thinking about diffusion and geographical location and how actually mapping some of the data of the novel forms against that data might qualify it further. It's not to say that we might be able to say that, oh, clearly this is causing that, but maybe it might just qualify how we interpret some of those, those peaks and, and declines. And I think that actually, Nick, you, you do that in some, I think in some chapters more than others. So for instance, when you talk about um, the phone's impact on novel production, you know, that, that graph was a very clear graph of looking at the, you know, the direct influence of a, a, you know, political event on how many novels were being written and published. And I think that, 
there are opportunities where I think maybe we could do do more of that, thinking about you know library circulations, book sales, editions being printed, and, and or even tracking, for instance, some of the the literary criticism or the discussion about these books and seeing how how that might impact what what comes next. Um, and I, I think it was also interesting because in in John's remarks. Uh, he, you mentioned affordances. And I thought it was really interesting because I also work a lot at the intersection of, of media studies and, and literature. And so thinking about, you know, affordances and, and, you know, is the novel as having affordances or the novel as an affordance or, or thinking about even um, some of the, the many institutions, John, that you mentioned earlier about the postal system, the, um, li you know, circulating libraries, thinking about, um, all of those different things and, and thinking about how those kind of as affordances in relation to the object of the novel, how that impacts these different systems rising and falling. So I think I thought it was interesting that John, you invoked that word affordance because I think that's another great term concept to bring out in from STS for thinking about literature and, and literary objects. So I think that works really well with kind of production figures of the novel in kind of a brute way. I'm not sure it's gonna explain as well the coming and going of artifacts. So, I mean, I, I think it, 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 you, one does want to know, you know, why, you know, in England, is there such a, a, a large increase in novel pop, you know, novel production in 1750s and then again, like 1770s, 80s, there's another takeoff if I recall correctly. I don't, I don't, I actually don't, Make, recall all the all the um, all the variation in the graphs. Um, uh, I mean, by and large, those increases look very similar to what's happening in France. Um, so I think it may be interesting to kind of ask ask if we can kind of pinpoint some sort of shift, right? Um, and and sometimes the shift might be due to the technology, and sometimes the shift might be due to these. Um, the, 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 these affordances that are really outside the novels themselves. So what I mean by the technology. So, I mean, so for, for example, when the CD replaced the cassette, um, um, sales of recorded music went way up. Um, and so an obvious explanation is that actually, you know, CDs were simply much more useful than cassettes. They could, they just be used in ways. And so they just, they just made people buy more music because this is a way better format to use, right? Um, I mean, that, it's kind of a hypothesis, um, but it's interesting that, um, you know, like the replacement of records by cassettes didn't actually do the same thing. Because um, everyone, know, if you remember cassettes, they're not very convenient. <laughs> they're convenient because you can put them in the car, but otherwise they're horrible to use, right? Because you can never find your song and whatever. Yeah. Um, there, I think there may be an example of that in 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 the data where, um, and I think you alluded to this before, Chloe, where in the in the in the in the 1730s in France, there's a bit a large rise in the production of novels. And I kind of postulated that it may have to do precisely with the fact that this was actually when the um, the memoir novel was, was coming online. And my hypothesis kind of, well, could it be that um, that basically this, this new formal possibility that had kind of been worked on slowly over time, but that for some reason right then 
was developing some sort of a kind of a coherence or a, um, or recognizability? Could it be that because of that, that formal possibility, it actually kind of induced more novelists, more people to become novelists, more novelists to write more novels, um, because it because there was something a narrative a narrative kind of position or posture there um, that never existed before, and then all of a sudden they thought could be made to do all this stuff. It's only a hypothesis. I can't know. The only other thing I'd say for these 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 external affordances, post offices and so on and so forth, is is you know you, you'd want to um, you you really it's it. They're, they can be hard to locate in time with any precision, right? I mean, you know, more and more libraries and more and more literacy and greater postal networks, you know, but it, most of these things are usually kind of more, more and more, right? So it, it strikes me as it's kind of hard to pin down specific changes to, 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 to those things because there's no kind of, or there's rarely a kind of boom moment. Um, but, there, but, but maybe there is a boom if, if you take the Raven bibliography seriously and the introduction to it. Uh, there is a boom not only in novel publication starting in the late 70s, early 80s in England, but in publication period. Uh, people are reading more, buying more books. So maybe it's, we shouldn't give so much stress to a novel publication boom because this is more people can read, more people are reading more books. Some of them are cheaper, not all. The so-called triple-deckers actually were expensive, but say the Minerva books, which are 800 of them published between the late 80s and the early 20s, were very cheap. And uh, so, so this, I mean, in a way, separating out the graph of novel publication is misleading. Uh, totally, and I, I mean, I do, I, I, I do point to this actually at the, at the beginning of the, I think chapter ten. Where in, in a way, this doesn't tell us that the novel is becoming more important. This just tell, this just tells us that that there are a lot more novels, but there may be a lot more plays, a lot more poems, a lot, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that we really, we 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 don't necessarily know. We can try to figure out if, um, and I, I did. There is some, you know, fairly recent, you know. Good bibliographical work that would suggest that that these increases are they don't show the solidifying hegemony of the novel they just show um, uh, uh, just expansion of the publication market in, in general which might be due to literacy and so on and so forth so that that would be that's really important um, and then one could imagine you know also doing other analyses that would involve trying to figure out um, you know if if not when if and when novels do actually capture a larger proportion of the market for what you know we want to call literature. That would be that would be interesting. I mean, I'm sure it does happen sometime in the 19th century, um, but when I don't know. Um, but that is absolutely true that these brute numbers don't tell us, um, don't give us that because they they themselves have to be contextualized. Yeah. I have a question for all three of you, which is to what extent. Can we think of the novel in the 18th century, for example, or going back, well, no, let's stick with the 18th century, as, um, as a national novel? And I understand why archives make it very difficult to work across national traditions. Um, and um, 
there's as 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 Chloe was saying at our event, there's so much work that's gone into your book that just it and and that goes into DH production that it feels a little bit ungrateful to ask for more or something. But but um but if you look at you know novel readers that are at least well known in the 18th century, there's this enormous cross-channel exchange and it's not only through translations, it's through people reading, you know, in the two languages. And I mean, I know Chloe, you've worked on mapping uh, how all the letters circulate. Um, so, so I'm just wondering, um, like, what does that, how does that skew what, what you're showing us? I mean, sort of following up on the, well, if, if, if novels sit in print corpuses, do nations sit in uh, a kind of international, Republic of Letters. I think the graphs for the 18th century show that basically what happens in France happens in England as well. <laughs> um, and there's some there's some differences, um, but the similarities are 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 clear. Like I mean, the way the way the epistolary novel um, uh, spreads and kind of homogenizes formally um, into its kind of poly polyphonic variant, um, the exact same thing. Um, even things like um, the way the novel chapterizes on both sides of the channel, um, extremely similar. So use of scenes as well, extremely similar. Um, there are differences. So the, the, the truth pretense um, hangs on in France much longer than it does in, in, in England. And I, I have my explanation is that the, the basically um, the way we interpret the, 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 the English situation, especially in the mid um, the mid-century, um, the mid-century in England is characterized by um, some brusque movements that you never see in the entire previous 150 years of the French tradition. Um, and, and so my, my, my hypothesis is, is quite simple, which is that, you know, basically there was really no tradition of the English novel <laughs> before then. And so, and so, it was it was very easy to for the the system to be rewired in that the system was barely present at all right so um it was very easy for novelists to um to adopt the epistolary novel because because it's not it's it's not really displacing anything um so but anyway right, so there, there are these very interesting differences but the broad similarities seem to me to be um to be you know, evidence that that there's a there's just total porosity um, between between the between these two countries at least right uh, which are not the only two countries but um, so I, I I think it's it's very porous. Um, See, that's a finding in itself because in terms of the traditional readings as I would understand them, the French novel much more heavily saturates the English novel. With say Ben Manley, Haywood, Defoe, and these court forms like the the Roman Seclay, uh, the Roman Aclay, uh, then the later 18th century, you know, the mid say Fielding and Richardson aren't especially French, it seems to me. Whereas Defoe and Manley and Haywood and and Ben, who's a little older, of course. Are, have very significant French dimensions. I mean, Roxana is in many ways a French novel, you know? And um, so I think, but that's at the level of content, not at the level you're 
you're you're dealing with. So in a way, what your abstraction yields uh, something important. I mean, it, it seems to me your that your frank acknowledgement that you're dealing in abstraction is crucial and very important, not an apology. I mean, the main achievement of structuralism as a movement was to show the power of abstraction in cultural and literary analysis, I think. So you're, I mean, you're not a structuralist, but the, the, the power of abstraction can be very, very great. And it just, I always think of Jerry McGann's statement that if you follow the uh, critical paradigms and assumptions of your object of study, you're not generating real knowledge. And you know, the move toward abstraction is a way of generating real knowledge, it seems to me. I mean, it's also for me a way of um, of maybe struggling against a, a kind of a fetishization of of um, cultural specificity, right? Um, I mean, cultural specificity is a great generator of of of, of knowledge of, um, of 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 claims that I mean, you know, super causal claims because you know. Ah, there's this form, and it only arises in this place, and it's so tied to that, and, and it makes our literary analysis seem super, super important. And, and anyway, so there's a kind of a fetishization of, of of difference there, and I think the abstraction um, helps us realize that um, you know a lot of people in in different cultural circumstances. I mean, one could ask how different is England, you know, in the great scheme of things, how different is England and, and France? Okay, but, you know, these different um, cultural circumstances, um, you know, actually people make very similar choices in these two cultures. One is Protestant, one is Catholic, you know, one is aristocratic, one is, you know, and look, they're actually making very similar choices. Their values are probably actually not that different. Right. So there's a lot of that kind of I, I, I want there's that it's not that different. It's different, but it's not that different. Right. Um, and so that is that is something I've kind of I, that is kind of important to me um, is, is, is to get away from uh, um, a, a type of a, a type of um, uh, emphasis on cultural difference that is basically achieved simply by not looking anywhere else and not asking is there it, is there anywhere else it, i mean if you know if if the novel is caused by the daily newspaper in england you know whatever um well we should look to see if somewhere else that doesn't have a daily newspaper is also producing novels right like so like france for example <laughs> Um, in regard to structuralism and an abstraction, though, I, I would I think it's wise to stay away from the question why, and just to focus on the question what. And 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 Dobonton says that in his article and description in the Encyclopédie, he's relying on Buffon when he says that. Um, but I mean the uh, why is a kind of rabbit hole. Go down, and 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 when you come out of the rabbit hole, you're into Alice in Wonderland. You know. But it's enjoyable. It's like QAnon. You know, you go down. It's so enjoyable. <laughs> <You go> down, <laughs> everything makes sense when you go down that hole. Everything starts making sense. That's right. But I also think it's interesting that it seems that in our discussions, both earlier and and now, it seems that there's kind of two threads that emerge. Which one is 
the kind of the evolution, if you will, of the different novel forms and artifacts that as, as you've pointed out are remarkably similar. The similar things happen in, in England and France. And, but at the same time, it seems that we've also been talking a little bit about you know, content and differences in content and, and also the influence, as you point out, of, you know, the epistolary form of Julie may not have influenced, you know, Paul et Virginie, but there's a certain kind of content aspect that, that undeniably is, you know, we can track through in other, you know, works. And so I wonder too, to introduce this question of the, the national novel, if, if perhaps that might reside more in, in content and subject matter and themes perhaps, and how those are deployed in different, cultural contacts. And, and I think that, you know, that also kind of brings us to a question that I, I've been thinking about on the topic of gender too, and, and thinking about Margaret's book on the sentimental education of the novel and how, how perhaps, you know, mapping gender might also provide an interesting lens back into Margaret, your earlier argument about, you know, how French, you know, male authors kind of co-opted this form from, from female authors. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm both very curious and very apprehensive of what the literary field would look like if it was subjected to Nick's kind of abrasive and, you know, invigorating abstraction. <laughs> and it would turn out I had read a little subset of novels and in fact, you know, there was a whole other world out there, which I think is probably the case, you know, but, but but all arguments are kind of local and partial. And if you don't make them, you can't go any further. So you read a lot of novels, though. I did. I read them in the old Bibliothèque Nationale, you know. And you read them. See, you could I get 10 of them at a time. I, you know, some I had to read them one. Yeah. Well, I kind of got into it like a digital reading avant la lettre because I got to start to check off codes and be like, oh, Right, the scheming woman of the world, you know, the um, duplicitous man, the you know, whatever. <laughs> that's neat. You know, that's really neat, and it that does remind me a little like folklore categorization, right, or something, something like that. Yeah, um, which is which is which is really pretty fascinating. Well, Nid, I was excited about your kind of proposition earlier about how some one aspect that your data reveals is this much, much longer history of, of novels in France before you know it, it happens in England and thinking about the history of the novel more the history of the French novel, actually. And I thought that was a very kind of exciting finding from, from your book, which is a nice, you know, argument for not closing French departments in the US. <laughs> if that's the only one, I think. <laughs> I see the writing on the wall, but um, yeah, I, I, I was, I was, I, I thought it would be try, interesting to try to do, to produce some, you know, figures and do some samples for the English novel in the, in the 17th century. I mean, you know, we, we, there are bibliographies, they, they lump together a lot of different stuff, a lot of republications and stuff like that. I mean, there just aren't many, there just aren't many, many novels in Britain, but, but for that reason, I thought, I could probably whip that out pretty quickly, um, but I, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with that. I, you know, um, I enjoy talking about the, you know, the um, what it all means. But as for the actual, um, the actual data, I'm, 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 sa I'm satisfied with with, 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 what we have here. But you might, you might just read Afrobane's love letters if you haven't, haven't because it's a. It's first of all very, very French, 
and it's uh, it's a hybrid of epistolary and uh, third person narration. That was very that was typical for the time. I mean, typical. Uh, basically, all the early epistolary stuff was um, very sui generis. You'd get so you could get you could get, for example, actually a little third person novella. And it would feature like an appendix of the letters exchanged between the, you know, it, that stuff was really, it was all up in the air. And that's fascinating with the epistolary novel. It's uptake is really slow. It takes it so long to take off. Um, I don't, I don't think, you know, we think it's obvious to imagine, um, you know, all these kind of people with various degrees of relation. Um, some of them, you know, some of, some of the some of the letter writers know each other, and they're over here. And some of them, uh, there's another packet of letter writers over here, and they kind of partially match up, like on a Venn diagram. And so that's like what I, you know, they call the polyphonous uh, epistolary novel. And we think that's kind of like obvious, but I, I think the record shows that it took people a long time to figure out, oh, that's how we could make an epistolary novel work. Except for Richardson, he goes from the familiar letters to Pamela at once. And there are a few other correspondents in Pamela. It's chiefly Pamela. And seven years later, he's at Clarissa. Yeah. No, so that's the Clarissa's. A, it's amazing. I mean, I mean, it's amazing. Listen, I mean, uh, Montesquieu's uh, Persian letters is amazing as well. Um, however, it's, it, it, you can show that Persian letters didn't have that sort of uptake um, because it was kind of, it was basically a twist on, on an early epistolary novel. It was, it was a novel of observation where you have characters exchanging observations about, about a, usually a local culture, they're often foreigners. And, um, and so it's a twist on that. And he adds this great harem plot and, and so on and so forth. And so he achieves this polyphony, but there's like no uptake of this. Um, we could say until Richardson, but Richardson's was kind of its own thing. He, he, he wasn't building on, um, uh, on Montesquieu. I mean, he, he, he did his own thing. So that's kind of what I call the uh, it is that that's an that's an example of invention that does kind of take up the, the 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 model that most people think of invention, where like wow, there's this great instance, and then people copy it. And basically, yes, though to look and see how long it took people to copy it is amazing. I mean, it takes them 20 years to start to up to really uptake on that. Um, but you're kind of your point of learning curve remains even for Richardson. I mean, it's just that it's a fast learning curve for him. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it takes people a long time to change the way they do things. I mean, it took a pandemic for us to, to stop going, burning all those hydrocarbons to go to these stupid conferences when actually, you know, we don't have to do all that, right? Um, uh, you know, we, the, There'll, there'll be some there'll be some happy medium, but basically it took us the pandemic to to shake us out of of doing the things the way we always did. There's a lot of Nick, we don't get to have dinner with we, you. I know. I, <laughs> yes, I know. I wish you had burned. Right, well, probably drive an electric vehicle, but it would be. <laughs> I know it is. It, it it's it's it, it's sad, but we will, you know, just just in the same way that. Um, 
people still uh, write books featuring um, heroes of the past. People still write Aristotelian novels. There's still a lot of Aristotelian films. They're called biopics. Um, they have a reason for being and they will continue to be. Um, so we will continue to see people in person, but it does kind of offer, offer these other other possibilities where I can be invited to give a talk in Germany where I was never going to, I was never going to take off in the middle semester and go to Germany, but I can do it now. And, and, you know, um, but no one would have thought of doing that before. Why not? Well, the question of audience too, I saw there were 59 people here today and uh, I heard about a talk by a former colleague of mine last fall. It was, uh, who's now at another university at, which was attended by a thousand people by Zoom. Yeah, yeah, and I, I know we had a attendee from Denmark who had written to, uh, who had just sort of started dropping in on Novel Center for the Study of the Novel events and, and enjoyed them. So, um, well, Nick, I really wish we could have a drink and dinner. <laughs> we'll just have to drink alone. <laughs> it's been really great to talk to all of you and. Um, Thank you so much for your time and for your interest. Yes, it was terrific, Nick. And Thanks it's a great to all book. three of you. You've been you're super, super, super generous. Thank you again for joining us in this episode of the Center for the Study of the Novels podcast, Cafe. We would also like to thank Nicholas Page, John Bender, and Chloe Edmondson for their generosity in agreeing to this conversation. Thanks to our team at the Center for the Study of the Novel, to Antrong Nguyen and Maritza Colon for their operational support, to our graduate coordinators, Victoria Zarita, Cynthia Giancotti, and Casey Patterson, to Eric Fredner for editing, consultation, and sound engineering, and to our host and director, Margaret Cohen. The Center for the Study of the Novel is a subsidiary of the English Department at Stanford University.